Uh, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, uh, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So let us then not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. So, um... Beth and the girls love that Pat Benatar song, We Belong to the Night. So in honor I'm gonna, of them, I'm going to say We Actually Belong to the Day is the title of the sermon. Yeah. Uh, so we began uh, talking last week about Paul's use of apocalyptic themes to address the perilous position that the believers in Thessalonica found themselves in. And, you know, it wasn't particularly great under Roman rule. There were all kinds of issues that they faced both in terms of demands to worship idols, demands to, um, you know, go along to get along for the sake of business and political relationships. And there was a real difficulty in this context, not just because of those social pressures, but because of, you know, the actual experience in uh, some instances of, of violence. And if you recall, this kind of claim is uh, uh, regarding the character of and uh, the necessity of thinking about the end times, and this specifically last week we talked about the concept of the civic greeting. Those, those, those things have basically served as uh, an American evangelical fundamentalist version of, of the Christian faith, the kind of basis for what we talked about as the left behind, the, left behind theology, that uh, what is happening here in these verses in Thessalonians is not exactly a, a claim for uh, the inevitability of, or the character of the rapture, but instead, uh, as we talked about last uh, last week, it is a classic Christian strikeover. It is Christian people in a difficult context holding on to a doctrine that is held by the empire or the opponent, and uh, instead saying that not only will Christians claim it for their own, but most importantly, the real issue here is that uh, in doing so, we claim that there is only one sovereign that there is only one who is worthy of this kind of greeting, and it is Jesus Christ. And further, that there is only one authority which is uh, worthy of our focus, our love, and our devotion, and that authority is the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will end all kingdoms and that embodies a perfect vision of justice and of sovereignty. So today we have a kind of continuation of this theme that is largely about saying when people are talking about the end times in, in the context of Thessalonica, and maybe generally when people talk about the end times, they're not just addressing the question about uh, curiosity about where this whole thing is going or where the universe will end. But one of the reasons we talk about the question of the end times is because it suggests to us ways that we ought to act now. That's, I think, the thing Paul is suggesting here. 
that there's essentially two different ways that we could be oriented towards the end of the world. For every doctrine about the direction and future and end of the cosmos, it's interesting to us, but it's more than our kind of curiosity about where things are going. What Paul is saying is that if you want to think about what you're called upon to do now, the relevant question is not when, the relevant questions are kind of what and how. The question is not when is this going to happen, the question is what is it that we are called to do and how is it that we are called to live? And so part of the big thing about reading this, uh, these parts of, uh, of Thessalonians to me is that, and it's a message that doesn't fit entirely well with the whole left behind theological framework, what the reason why we meditate on the coming of Christ for is not because it gives us hope in the uh, a context of suffering, although it does do that. It's not because it gives us a doctrine that helps us understand what the end of the world is going to look like, although it does do that. But the real reason why we meditate on it is because, because we have a sense of where it is that the cosmos is going, and because we have a sense of the plan that is unfolding in the name of God establishing the kingdom, what we're called to do is look at and to think about how we act in relationship to others, to uh, our brothers and sisters in the church, and to people beyond us. And we're called to be agents of love and agents of encouragement in the name of Jesus Christ. It turns out that what Paul is laying out here is that there are kind of two radically different approaches to this question of, how the world's going to end. There are two kind of fundamental ethical orientations, the children of the dark and the children of the light. The children of the dark engage this question with fear and resentment, and their basic thing is either to control or avoid the coming judgment. Whereas the children of light embrace the coming judgment because they believe that at that time, Jesus will establish sovereignty over the entire world. So Paul begins with this really interesting frame uh, in opening this letter in, uh, in, in Thessalonians. And what's interesting about it is he kind of says the exact opposite of where uh, we've generally taken interpretation of these verses. In other words, uh, instead, you know, this has inspired lots of debate within the context of Christian circles about what the Christian doctrine of eschatology is and what we think the end times will look at. But if you return closely to what Paul's saying, how does he open this section? He says, concerning the times and the seasons... I don't really need to write about it. <laughs> you know, that's what's interesting about what he says to the people in Thessalonica is he says he doesn't really think that it's that noteworthy, that it requires extended writing or thinking. So what's really interesting then is to sit down and really carefully unpack what Paul is doing here to figure out why he's writing about something that he doesn't think really needs writing. So let the one place to start that's really interesting is this formulation of times and seasons. So, I don't know, there might be other translations out there. Is there anybody got anything other than concerning the times and seasons? And it's, I think it's fairly consistent. So, it's a weird way of, of framing uh, a, a, a point or an argument. It's something that's not really used consistently uh, in the scripture. So, that's one of the things that kind of cues us to it's something you should pay attention to because it's a formulation that we don't find a ton of other places. And the idea of, or the, the concept of times and seasons is uh, really interesting, at least to me, because it pairs two distinct Greek words for time. So the first word here 
the one that uh, your, your, uh, your, your NRSV or that the KJV or the NIV translate as times, the word there is chronos. And the second word, seasons, the word there is kairos. And what's interesting is if you start to open up these two interpretations of time, I think it really makes what's going on in this passage make a lot more sense. So times and seasons, chronos and kairos. So chronos is something like linear time. It's the kind of time that's being measured by that clock on the wall in the back of the room. It basically, if you, you know, not to get too nerdy about uh, how we think about different conceptions of time, but chronos uh, is a vision of time that says time can be measured. And because time can be measured, it also implies, and we tend to think about it as if time is finite. So chronos sees time as a a succession of, I don't know, a finite set of uh, expiring seconds. So chronos is the view of time that says, how many ticks of that clock are left before we die, before uh, we get to the church meeting and have pizza, before, uh, I don't know, the world ends. The question that's interesting for chronos is because it's measurable and because it's finite, it also kind of treats all time as the same. It sees all time is kind of moving forward in this linear progression, and sometimes remarkable things will happen, and sometimes things that are unremarkable will happen, but for Cronus it doesn't really matter, because time is basically this kind of abstract, finite thing that we can measure with that machine. Kairos, on the other hand, is a kind of time that doesn't really concern itself with finitude or even measurement. That's what's so interesting about Kairos. So a lot of times you might hear the phrase, Uh, in the Gospels, in the fullness of time. Typically, the idea of the fullness of time uh, is is kairos. Kairos uh, is, I mean, it's a hugely important term for the study of rhetoric, and there's, you know, some people have been claimed it's like a rhetorical vision of time because it's about uh, the effects of how we think about and engage time as opposed to this linear measurement. But you might recall, I talked about it a couple of years ago. Anybody anybody remember this? Kronos is derived from the... um, uh, name of a slot that an archer in a fortification would have. So basically, you know, in case you don't remember my nerdy example and on the etymology of Kronos, basically, you know, an archer would sit in a slot in a fortification and, you know, to protect the archer, the, the width of the slot in the fortification was very narrow. So the archer doesn't have a lot of track to the left or to the right. And so what happens and the skill that an archer had to develop was that, you know, they'd pull back and they'd look out that slot and perhaps there's a horse coming across the field and Kronos uh, uh, it, it suggests that there's this point in time where there's perfect alignment between the horse, the person releasing the arrow, and the flight of the arrow. And it's about the, all of those things coming together at the exact right moment to essentially hit the guy who's riding across <laughs> the field of vision for the person. So Kronos uh, is the kind of succession of time. Kairos is like the fullness of time, that there's this link in time between the horse and the archer and the flight of the arrow that presumes that the, what's really interesting about time is not the succession of finite arbitrary moments, but what's really interesting about the time is that there's this kind of moment when everything overlaps, everything comes together, when the time is full or the time is perfect. And weirdly enough, it's kind of the way I, I think that it's being suggested here is that Kairos is a vision of time that understands that the universe is about God's action. Kairos is a kind of time 
that understands that what happens in the clock is not as relevant as the way that God, as God is bringing things together. And it, it, they're fundamentally different orientations towards time. Because the person who's thinking in terms of Kairos doesn't say, hey, Lord, when is this thing going to get started? We only have X amount of minutes left. The person who's thinking in terms of Kairos says, God is moving the universe in the way that God intends to, and there will be a time when everything comes together perfectly, just like the time when we release the arrow, and God has everything together in such a way that the linear succession of chronological time doesn't really matter to us that much. Because of Kairos. So that's why Paul says, and this is what's interesting, Paul says that the day of the Lord comes, what? Like a thief in the night. Now the interesting question is, for what time framework? That's what I think is really compelling here. Paul says, you yourselves, this is verse 2 and 3, you yourselves know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. There will be no Escape. Now, this is a pretty slick move. First of all, anybody have, I'll give you exactly one guess what pe- where peace and security comes from. It's the, it's the MAGA of the Roman Empire. It's like their branding model. Peace and security is their central kind of political statement about what they do and what their intentions are. So it's much like citing a political slogan in the modern times when someone says, when they say there is peace and security, that's not just an abstract thing. That's pulse. The they there is the Romans. And uh, they're not just saying something random about peace and security, saying when the Romans cite to you their, uh, their motto or their ideology, there's something very specific that's going to happen. And so he says, you know, look, and this is, we talked about this a little bit last week, but the Roman Empire was organized around its own eschatology. It had its own doctrine of what the end times were like. The Roman Empire and the Romans specifically thought they were kind of the end of history. They thought that Pax Romana was about wrapping all of history up and history had progressed to the point where the right people were in control and the point of the imperial cult was that they had established eternal Pax Romana. And what Paul is saying here, and this is a, it's beautiful, at the moment that the Romans say, hey, mission accomplished, uh, that they'd secured all of history, you know, all hell or all heaven in this case breaks loose. And all of a sudden, all kinds of things happen that despite the best efforts of the Romans to control everything, uh, their vision of control totally breaks down. But Paul says, and here's the interesting thing, it feels like a thief in the night, the coming of the day of the Lord, to someone who sees time only in terms of chronos. So the idea that the Lord comes and that's utterly arbitrary and random and it seems like it comes from nowhere, that is because a person has a vision of time that says it's just this succession of random moments. But here's what Paul says that's so interesting about whether or not it's a thief in the night. But you, beloved, this is verse 4, are not in darkness. So that for that day to surprise you like a thief, because you are all children of light and children of the day, you are not in night or darkness. The implication, if we read it closely, is not unrelated to this whole Kronos-Kairos thing, right? Kronos, finite, arbitrary, measurable time, has this shortcoming. And the shortcoming is, it only understands time as this kind of connection or succession of random moments. There's no overarching story in Kronos. The clock doesn't really care what happens or doesn't happen. The clock secondhand incessantly ticks on and it is utterly indifferent to whether or not there are bombs exploding or babies being born or whatever it might be in the scope of history. The Romans 
are caught in this view of chronological time. They see the completion of their own project as the thing that kind of completes the grand assignment of history, but the Romans don't have any sense of the coming of the kingdom, of God's sovereign plan, of the fact that history is organized towards a specific end, which is the establishment of the kingdom of God. So when Paul says, like a thief in the night, what he means is the day of judgment comes for the children of dark like a thief in the night because they cannot read the seasons. But for those who are children of light, who understand that the world and that the end of time is oriented towards this moment, a perfect completion, the coming of the day of the Lord is not a surprise. We may not be able to nail it down in clock time. It's not the type of thing that you could submit a doodle poll about or an outlook invite about, a, you know, end of the world comes next day. But it is that we believe and we ought to believe that history is moving towards a completion, a consummation. And because we understand the general story, which is that God loves God's people and God is coming back to establish a kingdom to raise those who have died from the dead and to establish new and perfect and perpetually holy life together. We may not know the moment where that happens, but because we understand the general movement of it, we are not surprised by the fact that someday God will come. We don't need to know the time slot down to the date to understand the direction of the story. That's what Paul's saying is the big difference between the children of light and the children of darkness. Unlike the Romans, we don't have to obsess about the specific moment. We simply live in the light of God's providence. We, we know the day of the Lord is coming. We know history is moving towards some specific end. And the beautiful thing about the Christian understanding of time here is that we are freed from the tyranny of chronological time because we are open to chirotic time. In other words, the thing that controls us is not exclusively the movement of those hands and that ticking, but instead what orients the way that we live in the world is that Jesus has come, has come in incarnate form, has risen again, and in doing so we know that we are not living out a random script written by, uh, the full quote of that is probably not politically correct anymore, but let's say we're not living out a random script which is not written by someone arbitrarily, but instead it's written with intention. So the main question for the Christian is, like I said, not when, but what or how. Not when is it going to happen, but what is it that we should do? How is it that we should live? And one of the, one of the most beautiful examples of this that I used to cite all the time, and then I realized that it might actually not be true, is, uh, so there's this quote attributed to Luther uh, when someone asked, what would you do if the world would end tomorrow? And Luther said, or hypothetically people attribute to him having said, uh, he would plant a tree. Now, from the perspective of Kronos, that's totally stupid, right? I mean, the 24 hours that are about to elapse are not enough time for the tree to mature. And by the way, if you've only got 24 hours left on Earth, you might want to do something other than tree planting, et cetera, et cetera. But from the perspective of Kairos, that God has a plan for the universe and God has assigned us each a role and a purpose, planting a tree is exactly the right thing to do. Because we plant the tree because God has given us a mission in the world, and the fact that that mission will not come to completion that satisfies or doesn't satisfy us really has very little to do with whether or not we embrace the mission and purpose God has given us on God's time. 
And that's the beauty, I think, for the Christian understanding of time that is implied here. It's not that we reject chronos. You know, we couldn't show up at 3 o'clock and be like, well, sorry, y'all, I'm totally against uh, time as laid out on the clock. So as an act of resistance, I'm going to say, well, I'll come here together chirotically. But what we do is we say that time is not reducible to chronos. But time is not reducible to that finite succession of moments because God has come to us and unites all those moments together in one beautiful, mysterious dance in which God is bringing the kingdom to completion. And so we are free to have a more intentional relationship to time and to history as this kind of beautiful, mysterious dance that God has asked us to step into. And that's Paul's basic sentiment here. Instead of worrying about when the rapture is going to come, Paul says this, let's just not fall asleep. Let's not be children of the night. Let's stay sober. Now, the, the you know, picking staying sober is not a, a random stab here. Paul is the patron god, the patron Greek god, the patron god of Thessalonica, I guess in some sense had to be the emperor because of the imperial cult. But Thessalonica's patron Greek god was Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry. And if you spent very much time wandering around in Thessalonica, it, you know, basically looked like what it looked like outside the wooden nickel at the wee hours in the morning, maybe. But basically people would, you know, drink like crazy as an act of piety or celebration to their God. And they drink until they basically passed out. And all of the Christian folk within the context of, of Thessalonica would have been used to seeing these people who were torn between or who were reveling between, on one hand, worshiping Dionysus, drinking till late hours of the morning, sleeping through uh, the day, and, you know, between honoring the festivals of Caesar and honoring the celebrations of Dionysus, almost everyone in uh, Thessalonica would have looked like a person who was essentially drinking or sleeping away every last tick of time in that great universal chronometer. That's the, that's the interesting thing to me, is that what Paul is saying is there are two basic orientations towards time and towards the end of time. There's the children of the dark and the children uh, of light. And within the children of the dark, there are two kinds of flavors of time that you might have. So the first option for the children of the dark is what we'd call the Roman option. The Romans say, look, we're here to bring you peace and security. And how do they do it? They do it by using force to make sure that they're squeezing every possible bit of security and peace out of a clock that is winding down rapidly. So the Roman view is fundamentally not only fearful and resentful, the thing Paul says here specifically is that it is wrathful. Why is it wrathful? Well, because if you think of the universe as being about entropy, you think time, everything is constantly falling apart, and you think that the Roman Empire is your last best hope to fend off arbitrariness and randomness and barbarians, etc., you understand the clock to be the enemy. So, and you understand disorder to be like the brother of, uh, of, of the winding down clock. And basically, you would see your life as a basically or essentially securing all these things which fundamentally are unsecurable. That's what Romans do. They apply military force for the sake of organizing everything because otherwise everything would fall apart. That's why the frame that Paul uses here in Thessalonians is what? When they say there is peace and security, what will happen? Something's going to come upon them like labor, which really hit me. The weirdest thing about, because, you know, of all the times I've experienced labor directly. 
Uh, and the dads in here will be able to sympathize with this, I think. But if 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 you you know if you don't have this in terms of uh, either from the dad side or from uh, the side of having kids, everybody's got these kind of moments that transform their life that are kind of weird. But the weirdest thing for me about having kids is that I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm alone in this, but I don't think so. Like you don't actually have the kid until it's popped out, right? So. You live in this kind of weird in-between time where you know there's a child coming, but it doesn't quite yet fundamentally change your life as much as when that baby is popped out. And then all of a sudden the baby's popped out and like nothing seems like it's normal for months. So that's the thing is the only answer to this kind of chronological imperative, you live and live and live and you maybe anticipate the baby, but when you're in the midst of both labor, the experience of labor and recovering from it and, and taking care of the kid afterwards, you experience all these times where you're like, what were we thinking? This is terrible. And the only way that you really get through the, the process of raising children or other difficult things to do in life is you say, there is this chronological imperative. You have to take care of the baby. You have to raise it, grow it, etc. But you need a chirotic perspective, right? You need to say, this baby is not just, uh, uh, you know, that I have to change a million diapers or diaper rashes or not sleeping, that this baby is uh, a wonderful child who will grow up someday to love us and to love other people and advance the kingdom of God. And so one of the ways that parents square themselves to the chronological realities of raising kids is we have to see kids as a kind of chirotic gift. All right, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way time has to work here is that we see in it not just a succession of moments, but we see in it that God is also moving too. The Roman option, which is to control the business out of everything, doesn't quite allow for that realization. The Roman option ultimately is about saying, let's make sure new stuff doesn't happen. Let's enforce our laws. Let's renew uh, anything that renews us or creates new and creative or good change that doesn't register if you have an eye on Kairos. So that's, that's the Roman option, basically try and control everything so that there's nothing random or arbitrary. The second option is the kind of Dionysian option. So this is the option of the folks who are, you know, drinking at the temple all the time. And it's like the Roman option in a weird way. It's kind of still rooted in fear. It's kind of still rooted in resentment. But the Dionysian option is essentially giving up. The clock is ticking away. Your time is finite. Let's be so blitzed that we don't realize what's going on. So raise a glass and drink away your sorrows. But both of these options have this fundamental fear about time and the unfolding of time and what's going to happen. Now, Paul says there's a third way for the Christian. This argument is complex, but it's so lovely to me. He says, uh, this is 6 through 11, so let us not fall asleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. And, uh, you know, for those who sleep, you sleep at night. Those who are drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope. God has destined us, this is the important thing, verse 9, God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. Now, here's the thing. The answer to the Dionysian option to drink away the ticks of the time is that we need to be awake and be sober. We can't give up on, we can't fix the decay of time uh, by ignoring it any more than we can by force. The Christian is called upon to say, God is in control. There is reason for hope. There is reason to love others. And that what is the main thing that we are supposed to do? Is it to fight against the Romans? No. Is it to uh, clear out the Dionysian drinking clubs and tell everybody how stupid they are? No. 
the thing that we are supposed to do is what? Paul says it quite directly. Encourage one another in Christ. That what we're called to do then is to have enough love and enough hope, enough faith in the salvation that God has provided for us to say we don't need to drink away the time nor do we need to control away the possibility of randomness. Those are both options that put us at the center. Instead, let's put Christ at the center and say that there is a world which is unfolding in a beautiful way if only we are able to give ourselves over to God and to do what God calls us to do. That's the answer to the Dionysian option, but it's the answer to the Roman option. Well, kind of. The, the point about Romans that Paul's saying is give up wrath. Wrath is the root of the Roman option. So if the Dionysian option is to give up and drink, what's the thing? The Roman option is that, I mean, think about it. What makes a person, you know, we all know people who are oriented towards the world and their primary mode of being oriented towards the world is control, sometimes by force and sometimes by power. And if you think about the psychological structure for that kind of person, the weird thing is, what is on the outside protect, uh, projected primarily as competence is oftentimes about fear. It's oftentimes about anxiety. So the Roman option, if you think about it, is really interesting. The word Paul uses here is orge. It's this not beautiful Greek word, but it's a great Greek, Greek word. Orge, that's the word for wrath, is uh, violent indignation. And it's taking pleasure in doling out a punishment. And the primary way that orge would have been used is when people talked about the experience of Roman magistrates who were punishing people in the town. And they would have said, gosh, look at the orge. Look at the delight with which that person relishes punishment. So, you know, it's not just punishment for the sake of punishing. It's punishment because the person exerting it enjoys it. That's orge. That's wrath. And Paul is saying as Christians, we can't have that orge because our job is not to enjoy inflicting pain or to enjoy inflicting punishment because if we do that, ultimately the root of it is what? The root of it is our kind of weird exertion of our own power because of our own fear. And Paul says we should move beyond that and instead, what we should say is that because we believe that Christ is in control, because we believe that history is oriented towards a beautiful completion in the coming of the kingdom, we are freed from the motives that would have us drink away or ignore the problems of the world in history, but we are also freed from the need to command and control in ways that try and force the world into what we want it to be because of wrath. Paul says, and this is the beautiful part, we are not destined for wrath. Look at the military gear that is offered here for the Christian. Anybody notice anything about it? Linda. I thought that it, it points to protecting your most vital parts of your body. Yeah, that, you're right. Anybody else? I mean, look, that's the thing. The gear that we are given here first is about protective. It's defensive. It, it is only, I mean, like, if you went into a fight with a great helmet and a great breastplate, that's awesome in terms of stopping yourself from getting hurt, but it's, you're not going to win the fight. You don't have a sword. You don't have the other things that you need. And I think Paul is doing that intentionally here. You know, there's these lists over and over of the weapons of the Christian, the things that we've been equipped with, putting on the full armor of God, etc. And there's an explicit omission here where there are no offensive weapons. I think what he's saying is that, look, if we were to carry a sword, we'd be every bit like 
the Romans. We have a battle to fight in some sense. We have to get it geared up for it. But our primary weapon, the primary thing we rely on here is not our own prowess, is not our ability to beat the other side. The primary thing we uh, rely on here is our hope in and our love for Jesus Christ, who is himself our salvation. The folks who are carrying the biggest offensive weapons are strong in some secular sense, but in a weird way, there's nothing more impotent internally than someone who has to carry a strong offensive weapon because they fear that the other person could harm them in some significant way. So the people who are the most armed are oftentimes the people who are most afraid. And people who are most afraid and most need to control things are the people that are most prone to wrath. Because the point of wrath is that we engage in it when we want to enjoy not only controlling someone else, but enjoy the fact that it has made reality more stable for us than it could have been. So there are these two psychological options available to children in the dark. One is to ignore things, and one is to try and control the business out of things. And both of those things are putting about putting a reliance in yourself over and against a history that is random and a history that is arbitrary and a history that is a tale told by someone who doesn't really write stories with any intention. As hard as it is to accept, the children of light don't need a sword. It's not in the kit that their king provides for them, at least in the so-called battle for the last days it's not, because Christ is our only need. We cannot avoid our fate by drinking it away like the Dionysians. We cannot secure our fate by uh, engaging in wrathful violence like the Romans have. We know that history is coming to some point. We are uncertain about exactly what that entails or what it means for us, but we believe chirotically that Jesus Christ will one day establish the kingdom of God in a way that makes it possible for all of us to commune with, with Jesus, with others, with the entirety of the kingdom. And what Paul is saying here is when we think about the end times, the punchline is we can't become embittered and hard like the Romans. We can't go out looking for a fight. Those are Roman options. And we can't ignore the concrete pain and difficulty that comes to us because of the arbitrariness and randomness of how history seems to move. And so what it is that we need to do in preparing ourselves for the times which are coming is simply to trust in Christ's salvation, is simply to trust in Christ's love, is simply to support and encourage one another, and finally to make real our promise that we believe that Jesus is our real salvation, not just in the sense of, of, of freeing us from sin, which is obviously super important, but in the sense that Jesus has come to really and finally remake the world in a way that makes it uh, just, in a way that fixes relationships, in a way that eliminates death, in a way that does all that stuff, because we believe that the day of the Lord is coming. And therefore, because we really believe it, we are called to be sober, we are called to be awake, and we are called to be free of wrath. That is what it means to be a child of the day. Amen. Take that, Pat Benatar. All right, rush me to the top.